So I want to continue uh, the talk about uh, what the Buddha taught and specifically about his leaving home and how do we feel about that. And um, I want to move into it just because somebody sent me this email and I was going to talk about the natural, uh, the naturalness of metta and uh, about how affective bonds uh, work. Strange to be talking about affective bonds if we're right away and talk about the Buddha leaving home, but we'll come around to that. So I have two non-Buddhist sources about um, the the relevance of Buddhism. Two people this week sent me this thing off the internet. Must have just come out into some public. I guess enough time has gone by. It's a year since the tsunami. It's really a. I guess because this now is a year long. This is in part some of the discussions about what's happened in the year. One of the things that's happened in the year is a year ago on the tsunami, a baby hippo survived. Have you read this anywhere? The waves on the Kenyan coast uh, and has formed a strong bond with a giant male century-old tortoise in an animal facility in the port city of Mombasa. The hippopotamus, whose name is Owen... Weighed about, who weighed at the time as 300 kilograms, which is about 650 pounds, was swept down the Sabaki River into the Indian Ocean and then forced back to shore when the tsunami waves struck the Kenyan coast on December 26th before wildlife rangers rescued him. It's incredible, uh, they say. This less than a year old hippo has adopted a male tortoise about 100 years old. And the tortoise seems very happy about being a mother, (laughs) says the ecologist Paula so-and-so, who's in charge of this particular wildlife park. After it was swept uh, swept away and lost its mother, the hippo was traumatized, she, she said. It had to look for something to be a surrogate mother. Fortunately, it landed on the tortoise and established a strong bond. They swim, eat, and sleep together. The hippo follows the tortoise exactly the way it follows its mother. If somebody approaches the tortoise, the hippo becomes aggressive, as if protecting its biological mother. And she added, the hippo was left at a very tender age, and by nature, hippos are social animals, like to stay with their mothers for four years. Someone else sent me the the commentary on the same, so it must have gone around on everybody's email says, this is the coolest thing. This other email says, a baby hippo who thinks the tortoise is his mom. She actually, this person sent me photos of the hippo and the tortoise lying down next to each other. Uh, here's the tortoise and here's the hippo lying on it. <laughs> the hippo is a boy, but it never, it doesn't seem to mind. It's, uh, neither of them seem to mind. It's so cute the way the baby follows him around tortoise seems to be okay with that. And the tortoise, despite being old, is completely, and a completely different species from the hippo. Oh, this is her her interpretation. What's important is the tortoise, despite being old and a completely different species from the hippo, has kept an open heart and given love when needed. Probably the tortoise is enlightened. He certainly has had plenty of time to meditate. <laughs> So, uh, I, I, well, I'm glad you liked it. I thought, well, what am I going to do with this? But 
But uh, in a way, you know, first of all, I wanted to make the point about uh, most, with the exception of rhinos, who I know are very, you know, they go around by themselves, meet rarely and only to mate, and then they all go off. Well, most of the animals, species, and particularly people, are herd animals. We have hermits every once in a while, and people who go off and live in caves who are by nature very introverted. But most of us, when we meet people, we say, what's new? You know, we, we, we're really connecting animals. We, want, we tell each other stories. What's new? This is happening. That's happening. Oh, what's happening with you? And we're interested in other people's stories. I think partly because they're our family, so we're interested in the largest sense of family of human beings, and partly because that way of what's new, oh, really, and how are you managing that, is the way we teach ourselves how to live a life, how to do things. You know, what's new? Oh, you have that difficulty. Uh, You're uh, 75 and you need a new driver's license and you have to take a driving test. Hmm, I don't have to do that yet. I have five years, but, you know, how do you do that? And Do you have to drive or do you have to just take the written? No, it's just the written and an eye test. So, but, you know, you learn things as you go along. I didn't know that five years ago. I wasn't interested in that five years ago or ten years ago. So you get interested. And Most of my friends now, when we meet each other, we say, how are you doing getting old? And people say, good enough, you know. <laughs> and that's a lesson. So we have all these lessons that we learn by saying what's new. We are herd animals and, and social animals. And we like partnerships, I think. And we, we join in kinship groups. And we have affection. We, have, uh, we, we become bonded. That was the point of that particular article, that not only human beings but other species bond. And when we hear about it, we are moved. You know, We feel good about that that hippo found himself a new mother. Everybody's heart picks up from that. This is such a central point of what needs to, I, I think, I, I take this as a proof text, you know, that yes, we are roused and, and consoled by the fact that this match has been made, that we ourselves really want for the best for people. That's our natural inclination. And that we're happiest when that natural inclination is able to operate. And when we listened in the very beginning of a class this morning, we were sitting listening to the metta tape, that metta chant. The whole point, I think, of saying all beings on every single realm, may they be happy. And if I think about, I don't know all the beings on every single realm, and I don't know, you know, what beings, whatever they may be, one of the lines of that chant was. And... I, you know, I've thought about it over the many years about how can I actually visualize all beings. And I don't think it's actually about visualizing all beings. I think it's visualizing and imagining and conditioning a heart that's unreserved. Then you don't have to worry about how, where the beings are, up or down in the highest depths, in the lowest and the highest heights or the lowest depths. If my heart were completely sweet, then I would wish well. And it would automatically go to all the beings that I heard of, didn't hear of, yet born, not born. In the Buddha's um, uh, teaching on loving kindness, in the Metta Sutta, it says, wish well to all beings, those that are near and those that are far away, those that are born and those that are, those are already born and those that are yet to be. 
those that can be seen and those that can't be seen, all beings. How would it be to have a heart that didn't startle into distancing itself? I noticed when we were praying for people, somebody mentioned the name of a prominent political figure. And it was a little bit of a, you know, the ripple goes through the room because uh, for everybody, whether they are supportive of that political figure or not in support of that political figure, it's a charged word. Because everybody is either thinking yes or no, you know, or uh-uh, I have to do that too, okay, you know. All right, that's a person. And it's not even that that's a person, but I want my heart open. Wishing well doesn't mean forgetting what you like and what you don't like. It just means wishing well. Do you know what? It's cold in here. Are you cold? It suddenly became really cold. <laughs> It normally gets hotter and hotter, but it's cold. So I want to take up the story again about the Buddha and his teachings because I want to talk about the fact that the two, picking it up from last week, that uh, the two central things that I think the Buddha saw about human beings as a species that the teachings are based on are the tendency of human beings to um, create suffering in the mind by the habits of the mind, tie their minds in knots rather than be open to each experience, struggle with their experience rather than respond to their experience, and discuss, and talk, to, talk about that as the cause of suffering. Cause of suffering not being the pain in the world. The pain in the world is the cause of pain. He is really te- he, what, what he taught, and in many of the scriptures said, "I come to teach one thing and one thing only: suffering and the end of suffering." There's a very specific meaning to suffering. The suffering is not pain. Everybody's got pain. There is pain and there is joy in the world. What he was talking about was not ending pain in the world or ending joy in the world, but ending. The, the, the struggle in the mind that thinks it needs to be different from how it is because it can't be different from how it is. It's the way it is. That's the whole of the Dharma in really one sentence. It's kind of staggering when you think about it. We're going to come, here's this understanding that's the wisdom path. Things are the way they are for such myriad causes. How many people read the Sunday New York Times magazine section this week? Do you read that story about the tsunami and what happened? This is interviews with many, many people who survived, obviously. And the gist of it is that survival so often was a question, and said this in the headline of the article, it depended on whose hand you, choose to, you chose to hold. It was, you know, which tree you chose to hang on to which building you were behind. One doctor who stayed late on her shift in the emergency room because the next person hadn't come otherwise would have been in the middle of it and survived. And you realize, I get even goose pimples when I tell you about it. You can find it, you, you can read it, it's a very well done article. But, and the point of it is, is not just for the tsunami, for everything. The causes, the, the causes that contribute to any moment unfolding the way it is 
are so myriad, you know, that whose hand you chose, whether or not someone came late to work so you couldn't leave. In the World Trade Building when, when it was hit, um, in the... Uh, yeah, in the, in the in the trade buildings when they were hit on nine eleven, there were all the stories of the people who stayed late because there were extra dishes to wash, or the people who didn't get there because it was a traffic jam, or they couldn't find the cab, or they their wisdom tooth was hurting them that morning, so they stayed home. Any number of reasons why people survived or didn't survive that was so completely random and happenstance. And so often when, you know, I, I remember when it was, way, you know, maybe never, but very young, I used to think I like to be in charge of my life. And it's so clear to me that I am in charge in such a very proximal way to my life. I am in charge of what I eat for lunch today if I live long enough to make it to lunchtime. But it, and nothing happens to me on the way to the lunch. But anything could happen. And then I will be in charge of whether I have this sandwich or that sandwich. But other than that, and that will depend on whether or not they have it in the deli. Maybe they'll be out when I choose it. So really, when you think about it, I think about it every single time I go up the highway and pass an accident with with the the, uh, emergency vehicles. And you think, oh, dear, this must have happened five minutes ago because they're just taking care of the people at the scene. And then everybody thinks, I could have been here five minutes ago. Oh, good that I stayed five minutes extra talking to so-and-so, or good that I stopped off to get a sandwich, or good that I this, or good that I that. But every day that we come home intact, it's good that we did. You know, that there were a million accidents that we didn't see on that day that we weren't a part of. And the reason I say this is it's, it's again... Uh, it's it's a sa- it's in the same category of awareness that I feel when we make our prayers at the end of our sitting together. This is happening to this person. This is happening to that person. This is happening to this person. This is happening to that person. And I, the sense that I have is everything happens in this world of things. Everything happens. It's always happening to somebody. Something. Not always tragedy. Sometimes. Marvelous things are happening. Somebody's seeing her grandbaby for the first time today. Somebody else is doing something. I'm trying to remember from our things this morning. Somebody's seeing their grandbaby. Somebody's getting better from an illness. Some really good things are happening. But something's always happening to somebody. And it could be happening to me or you or anybody. I think that that realization that life is so fragile and we really are not in control and everything is always changing. I heard a life insurance uh, ad on uh, the, the, the radio the other day and it had to do with the fact it was term insurance that you renewed every five years or something. And I suppose it, it had something where it was also a savings account because... It said it, there was a line in the copy that said, "And in the event that you don't die, at at the end, apparently you get some portion of this back." But you know, it sounded like in the event that you don't die, that's not an event that's going to happen to any of us that we don't die sooner or later. But it was so funny driving along. I thought, "What's the matter with that sentence? In the event that you don't die?" <laughs> no, no, no. It, that's that's actually there. Old age, sickness, and death. If we make it that long, is there. And if we realize that, that assumption is what the Buddha really 
said if we really realized that, we would cease to quarrel. That line about cease to be contentious, cease to quarrel. Realize, really, it is a hospital, this whole world, where we are all, you know, in long-term care or in rehab or acute care. And, and everybody longing for, for more. You know, that, that odd thing about longing for more. However much we know that, that we're going to lose everything or everyone or our own vitality, we wish it weren't so. And what the Buddha was teaching was the dependence of changing those habits of longing for it to be different, longing to have more, longing to have other, longing to have less of, uh, longing to have things different so I'd be more comfortable, that that habit would go away if we realized things are way beyond what can be influenced by our longing. So the longing is extra tension in the mind for nothing. If wishing would make it so, it would be worth wishing, but, you know. Not being, I, I want to come back and talk about it because I think wishing does do something. I like it that we wish for the well-being of all beings. I think it does something good for our own hearts, and I hope it does something good for all beings. Needing for it to be otherwise is what is the not the cause of suffering in the mind, it is suffering in the mind. The two twin things that are true of humans that the Buddha taught was the fact that we have this natural, unnatural somehow, somehow. People say if the natural mind is so uh, relaxed and open, why does it tie itself in knots? Why isn't it wiser if there's a natural wisdom? If every once in a while you meet people who say, you know, that's life, that's the way it is, who seem so wise, they didn't even meditate and they're wise, you know, they just get it. How many people here knew someone who was incredibly wise and never meditated? Yeah. <laughs> we are all here, I think, because we needed to meditate. <laughs> we didn't just get it just like that. Maybe we'd be somebody place else if we'd just gotten it, but... Some people have a way of not complicating their lives with demanding that it be otherwise. They say, what are you going to do? This is the way it is. And still not be alienated from life. So the two things, the Buddha said, we tie our minds in knots with habits. I am responsible. In the, in the movie Kundun, the baby Dalai Lama, when he's saying his four noble truths, says the second noble truth is, I am responsible for most of my own suffering because of the habits of my mind. That's an amazing thing for a young child to know. It's an amazing thing for an adult to know. So in the, in the movie, which I watch once a year, kind of as a ritual, I like it very much. I love it, this baby boy saying, I am responsible, I am the cause of most of my own suffering because of the habits of my own mind. Things happen, happen the way they do, and to be able to say, oh, this isn't happening. I wish it were otherwise. I'll try to change it. Not resigned, but not feeling this shouldn't be happening. Not resenting. Not moving away from life. Not hating it because it's not what I wanted. Maybe a more romantic way to say it is falling out of love with life, you know. Most days, we, we really are... Um, uh, 
and in some way in love with life. You know, with this is not exactly the season for baby deer, but or for but in the spring, you know, when the deer walk by with the babies, and everybody says, "Oh, and they say, oh, it's wonderful to be alive on those days because you see, oh, life is good. And we see people we love. Oh, and life is wonderful. These great things happen. People invent laser surgery." People get better. People have grandbabies. They say, oh, life is amazing, isn't it? Look, every day these wonderful things happen. People write uh, symphonies. They make art. We listen to music. Next week, Edie's going to play here, actually. Be sure to come early, because Edie will bring her instruments and play early, which she does every December here. And it'll be the last day in December that I'm here this year. Uh, so... Uh, be sure to come. Uh, so there are lots of th reasons why we uh, usually move closer to life experience. Oh, good. Today's the day I get to meet my friend. Today's the day I get to do this. And then there's the ways in which we fall out of love with life and we grumble. shouldn't be like this. It's unfair. Somebody uh, said to me in response to some email I wrote last week, oh, it was a, I'd, I'd written a story to her about some incident where uh, my husband had said, that's not fair, that's not fair. And uh, she wrote back, she said, those words, that's not fair, have caused more emotional turmoil in the history of the world than any other words. It's not fair, you know. It's, but because it's always, you know, according to what? It's not happening. You know, who, who here had a child, anybody here who had a child had, knows that a child comes home from school at one point says something is not good with the teacher or something's not right or something's not working out or whatever it is in the school. And you say, well, you know, this is one of those things. Sometimes you don't have the best teacher. Sometimes the person you're sharing the desk with isn't so, isn't so compatible. Things don't always work out. You, you know, you, that's part of it, being in a life. You have to work it out. And the child is mystified. They say, but it's not fair. You know, and you've taught them for years that it's supposed to be fair, it's supposed to share, it's supposed to this and that. So it's a big news. It's not fair. It's not fair, life. It is not fair that some people are in this part of, nearer to the wave and some people further. It's just how it was. And to be able to say, I would have wanted other, but I got that. So the not tying part of the mind the way the mind takes uh, a challenge and turns it into suffering is one whole side of the Buddha's teachers, of what the Buddha recognized in people and taught towards, and those are the <coughs> wisdom teachings. The, and that's really the point of mindfulness practice. The whole other thing that the Buddha noticed about people is their uh, um, affinity uh, factor, the fact that we are amiable animals, that we wish well. We wish well, first of all, for ourselves. We do. Um, although sometimes it takes me a while to remember I'm not being very kind to myself. The truth is that we all want the best for ourselves. And we want the best for other people as well. Actually, sometimes when we think not, uh, when, I, when I think a recriminating thought, like just for that, when I see this person again who offended me, I won't be so super nice to them. You know, I don't have to bring it up, but 
I won't be so super nice. I'll be a little bit cool, and then maybe they'll know that they did it, and they'll feel bad because I won't be my usual nice. I'll be a little bit cool. But, you know, as soon as I watch that thought and I feel it, it's such a disagreeable thought in me. You know, it doesn't feel good to be hatching a plan of recrimination. It's like a poison thought in the mind. And it soon gets in your body and you don't feel good. Like, yuck, what was I thinking? You know, never mind about the... And and in fact, you and also, if I'm going along and I'm really thinking about how I might really say this little remark that would cause him so much pain, I realize, oh, I don't want to cause him so much pain. That doesn't feel good either. Most of us do not want to cause pain. We don't want to cause it to ourselves or to other people. And that was the other whole thing that the Buddha saw. And towards that side of our nature, really he taught contemplation practice, concentration practices, of which metta practice is a prime example. He taught the practice of consistently wishing well to all beings. He saw it as consistent with the nature of human beings that we wish well for ourselves and that we feel the best when we wish well for other people. I'm convinced that he taught it because it's, it, it's, uh, it's the, the greatest personal refuge. Much more, I, I'm making this up, but you know, I don't know what he had in mind, but I, I actually think, the legend is, by the way, that what he had in mind was that people would feel consoled. The, uh, the legend about metta teaching is that the Buddha taught monks metta meditation, wishing well for all beings, when they were frightened because they had to go off in the jungle where there were tigers and uh, scorpions and spiders and dark and things that they were afraid of. And he taught them metta as an amulet. You'll feel protected if you're wishing well. But actually, and I hope that's true. It's a sweet story. I think you feel protected. I feel protected when I am wishing well. Because in the moments that I am wishing well, I have no enemies. Isn't that so? If you can wish well to all beings in all directions, in that moment, you have no enemies, so there's nothing to be afraid of. So we're going to come back to the story of the Buddha himself and his life, but I want to make sure that you know that I am using as my text for today this month's issue of National Geographic, which I commend to you. you can get a, I have a subscription, but you can get it on the newsstand. has an article on uh, called Buddha Rising, and uh, it's a big, long article, uh, including uh, American Buddhist monks on alms rounds and uh, huh? uh, getting potato chips in their alms bowl. And it, it, it says underneath, these, these are standing outside at Shasta Abbey. They are making, uh, they are making rounds uh, in Mount Shasta. Uh, canned food, chocolate, even potato chips. Almost any vegetarian donation is welcome when the monks of California Shasta Abbey collect monthly alms. In return, they live simply and strive to conquer the passions that can lead people astray. Conquer the passions is an interesting way to put it. No, this is conquer the passions that can lead people astray. It's not the passion to uh, bring wholesomeness into the world. I think that that at the same time, that the passion for self-indulgence and self-serving is quelled, the energy for serving the world is heightened. That it moves from one reservoir into another. 
So it, it, it actually has a picture of uh, folks meditating in somebody's uh, uh, home in Washington, D.C. They, here they are quoting the teachings of the Buddha as whether you are happy or not has less to do with circumstances within, than with how you perceive them. I think that's exactly true. Whether you think of them as a personal affront, poor me, this happened to me, woe is me, which is making the whole world and the the complicated, the 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 uh, incredible, vast, incomprehensible scope of karma, and you're making yourself the center of it. Poor me. <laughs> My mother-in-law, whom I loved, used to go out, and we'd go out to go do an errand or something, and that she'd been looking forward to, and maybe would have a cloudburst start to rain. She'd say, "Just my luck, it's raining," and it was as if the whole cosmos had conspired okay. to rain on my mother-in-law. <laughs> that's a very, that's a somewhat personal view of. Uh, these are the monks at Gampo Abbey in uh, uh, Nova Scotia, Pema Children's Abbey, playing their annual softball game with the local uh, uh, firemen. And which they always lose. They lost 19 to 7 or something. Uh, this is an inflatable Buddha in, uh, in the Ohio Columbus Museum of Art, Columbus, Ohio. It's a reclining Buddha. And this is a very famous pose of the Buddha, a reclining Buddha. This one apparently is inflatable. Uh, and they, un- they deflate it every night. Uh, because to represent, it rises every morning and deflates every night, representing life's impermanence. Says the says the artist, who made it's a great it's a great artwork. Isn't that good? It, it inflates every night. There are uh, there are uh, three hundred and seventy nine million Buddhists in the world. They are the fifth largest religion after. Um, Christianity, of which there are 2 billion, uh, Islam, 1 billion, Hinduism, about 800,000 something. I read all the numbers here. And Chinese religion, and then Buddhism. Less than a billion. A third of a billion, actually, just about. Uh, What I wanted to read to you was that here in the National Geographic are the Four Noble Truths. Truth number one, there is suffering in the world, mental and physical. Suffering occurs because of too great an attachment to one's desires. This is a very well put way to put it. Suffering is not desire. Often you read the cause of suffering is desire. We have lots of desires. I want this, I want that. Oh, that looks good, I'll have that. It's too much attachment to the desire. The question is not to be neutral, not to say, well, Bring me whatever you've got, or you know, oatmeal is the same as apple pie with ice cream. It's not, <laughs> you know, that's to say, I prefer the apple pie with ice cream. Oh, only oatmeal. All right, I take the oatmeal. It's the ability to say, this is what I'd like. Okay, this is what I've got. Too great an attachment to one's desires. That's the suffering. It's, I like to think of it as the insatiable need in the mind to have things other than what they are. And lots of times, I'd like to have things other than what they are. Insatiable need. <laughs> Third noble truth, by eliminating that attachment, that craving, you can eliminate suffering. 
And the fourth noble truth, there is a method to eliminating that habit of craving, of clutching. And that's called the Eightfold Path, which goes on to say, moral compass, Eightfold Path, leading to a life of wisdom, right view, right intent, virtue, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, mental discipline, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Okay, now we get up to, that's what the Buddha taught. When we ended two weeks ago, when we first started the life of the Buddha, I think it was two weeks ago when we talked about he went forth, and uh, last week we talked about the Mindfulness Sutta. Uh, On that going forth, he did leave his wife um, and child, eight years old. It was not an unknown thing at that time uh, to go forth into the as as a spiritual. That that's what people did. They went forth to seek spiritual understanding. Uh, when the truth is, he did leave. Uh, he didn't leave them in a poverty position because they, he was a prince and he, they lived in a palace. But by current cultural standards, that wouldn't be acceptable. The way the story becomes um, all right for me is uh, I take it completely as a metaphor for the most part. There are two ways. I take it as a metaphor, number one. I think that there's a going forth that we all do when we realize at some point in our life, uh-oh, this is more complicated than I thought, and I haven't got everything all figured out, and I'm not in charge of it all, and as much as I would like to have things different from the way they are, I'm only in charge of a very little bit of it. Um, most of my, When I talk with my friends now, and all of us have grown-up children, who are already grown-up children almost, we talk about, remember the time when we could tell them what to do and we could make rules, and you say you have to do it this way or that way. And alas, at a certain point, you can't tell them anything. Just have to fall back on prayer and hoping that you've put in enough good stuff there. But in truth, at some point in our lives, we realize we're not in charge, and you never know. And for everybody, at some point, one or another form of that, either I'm not in charge, you never know, Life is very fragile. People often come to practice when they've had some um, cataclysmic event in their life. They've lost somebody or they've taken ill in some way that isn't going to get better or that is never going to be, they're never going to be the same person. A person who has survived breast cancer is now a person who survived breast cancer. Even they're entirely free of cancer. There's a wonderful ad now that's showing on TV with breast cancer survivors, because it's very treatable now if you catch it early enough. And the different women, uh, all different shapes and sizes and colors and ages, and they say, I'm Marion, 17 years. I'm Ellen, five years. I'm Julie, 10 years. And you look at all these different women. They're different women now. They're healthy, all of them. But they're women who have had this experience. They know that life is possibly interrupted all of a sudden, by a surprise. Everybody here who's had a mammogram knows that in the five minutes you sit while they're checking the film, you think to yourself, I wonder what my life is going to be like for the rest of this afternoon, you know? And, you know, it was, and it didn't change in that five minutes. If it had changed, it changed before. But you'll know in the next five minutes if you're going to go home a different person than you came in. As soon as that, that particular point about temporality 
and fragility comes in anybody's mind, then the questions that are all the existential questions, what are we supposed to do with this life? It's temporal. We get a certain amount of time. And we actually don't know how much time. Is there a job we're supposed to do? Is there something we're supposed to get done? How are we supposed to live it? And how will I manage to deal with all of the challenges that I have to deal with of loss, of things about myself, my own health, my own vitality, my own dreams, but the pains and the losses of people or causes near to me? How will I do that? And I think that's what sends everybody into their own spiritual search. I think the Buddha's journey, and he may have left home because that was culturally what people did in those times, the Buddha's journey is paradigmatic of our own journey. We are all doing the Buddha's journey, whether or not we are living in homes with families. We're doing the Buddha's journey because we're thinking about that. You're here because you're thinking about that. How will I make my mind hospitable to whatever this life offers it? Not, uh, I, I actually uh, stop short at embracing whatever comes. Yeah. Not going to embrace whatever comes. Hospitable to it. You know, hospitable. That'd be great. Hospitable is, is all you have to do. Not, not, I, I don't think we're asked to embrace whatever comes along. I would have rather not. Many, many years ago, a very good friend of mine who was dying of cancer in her 40s, young, said to me, I've learned so much from my cancer. She said... <clears throat> I've grown tremendous emotionally. She said, but if you'd rather know, if you want to know, I would rather have not learned and be living. That's it. Everybody would rather be living and not learned. But if we don't learn in our own bodies, we learn in other people's bodies. And the two paths that the Buddha taught, so the, the specific answer in the, in, the, in the legends about the Buddha is that his wife and his son joined his order of monks and nuns and both of them became enlightened. That's, that's the end of the story. So if I take the whole thing as a metaphor, to the degree that I live my life in, uh, I do my practice life, however I've done, which involves a fair amount over the last 30 years of retreat practice, and a fair amount of practice and a fair amount of teaching. If I put it all together, probably we one really long retreat. Uh, which I, 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 uh, I, I like when I'm, uh, when I'm teaching somewhere and some of my family are there, all now grown, and people say, how did you manage to meditate uh, with children? I said, well, you know, I, I went away and I did short retreats and they didn't notice and so I could do it in the rest of, interpolate it in the rest of my life. And often after the talk, not in a public way, one or another of them will say to me, Mom, we noticed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> But you, would, but you know, I, I, but you, we noticed. But you know, I think to whatever degree I or any of us manages to come to terms with that very question, asking the bus, how are you managing to live this life? Then we manifest ourselves with more kindness and compassion to everybody else in the world, whether or not we articulate it as dharma. We manifest in a way that's sensitive to the fact that everyone is struggling. Those two twin recognitions, everybody struggles because everybody's mind has the habitual leap to, no, I don't want it this way, I want it another way. Ah, oh, I have to do this. All right. 
That's a very fast version. Mostly it takes longer to get to, I have to do this. I have to accept it. You don't do it that fast. But to be able to realize everybody else's mind, just like mine, has those habits of mind that take the pain and the joys of life and tie them up into suffering. Even the joys. This is great. I want it never to end. May it not end. This can't end. Everything ends. It's a poignant about ending. You know, that uh, eating. I remember last year at this time, you read a passage of the Buddha, from the Buddha's speaking, in which he spoke about the, the, the pain he felt in leaving his son. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? It was a, was it some, something... You sure it was me who read it? Yes, yes, it was this time. Uh-huh. And it was the story of the Buddha's life, and it was something about the pain of this separation that I was very struck with. Uh-huh. And connect with what you're saying. That would be lovely. In terms of the, <laughs> the spiritual quest. I'll try to find you that. Last year, this past year. <coughs> I'll try to find it's that. From the I'll try to find that. Because I would love that. I, I, oh, it's 11 o'clock. I, because, you know, what comes to mind always when you say the Buddha's path of wisdom is the, another paradigmatic story. Both of the, the wife and the son also got enlightened at the end of that story. Uh, is, there's the paradigmatic story, again, of, I think it's a, it's a parable, but of a, a woman who comes to the Buddha with a child who's died and said, uh, you're a wonder worker, you do miracles, would you bring him back to life? And the Buddha says, I will. Bring me a mustard seed from a house where no one has ever died. And of course you can see that the woman goes off and can't find a house where no one ever died because someone dies in every house. That's the way it is. And she comes back, and in the stories, she comes back and bows to the Buddha in um, gratitude for having had her mind open to the awareness that things arise and pass away and so completely understand it, understanding it that she is able in that moment to give up her anguish over the, not her pain necessarily, but the anguish, not need for it to be different, give up the suffering. So that's always told as a story of wisdom being the antidote to suffering, that if you saw clearly enough, you could let go of suffering. And I was just telling a friend of mine yesterday that I want to write a coda to that story. I just wanted to have another two sentences or three, a half a paragraph, after she bows and says, I get it. I'm not going to struggle anymore. I want for the two of them to sit down and cry. Mm. I think it would be a good end to that story. Mm. I'm not sure that if the story happened, they didn't. Because I think that's, human, that's what human beings do. Whether or not they struggle and need it to be otherwise, maybe especially in the moment when you say, I give up, it isn't otherwise. It can't be otherwise. Then you have to cry. And I would like for that to happen. So I like it if he felt that pain because the other half of it is the path of love. The only answer is that act of compassion. It's an act of compassion to ask her to do it so that that wisdom could arise. So next week is the last of the weeks that we'll be together because then I'll be gone for three weeks. So I had promised... We would do the mindfulness path, we would do the metta path, 
didn't read you the Metta Sutta today, so I will next week while Edie is playing the music. Uh, and I want to talk about the path of uh, uh, the path of paramita practice, which is the path of cultivating the virtues of the heart. I most particularly want to talk about the training part of the Eightfold Path. You remember the first week when we ended by saying uh, the Buddha met the ascetics he'd been with before. He taught them the, about his enlightenment. He taught them about the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, the Eightfold Path. I want to talk. I want to end by re-going over the Eightfold Path and especially the central part of it, the practice part of the path, which is right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness and right concentration. Because I am thinking that right effort, I want to end up saying, is the key piece of it, the piece that says, now I'm going to take my mind and put it someplace else. I'm going to change my heart in this moment. The intention, the inclination towards the uh, compassion so that wisdom will arise, I want to end up by saying, as I think, the heart of the path and the heart of what the Buddha taught. So, take a breath. (laughs) All those people we know at this moment, may they be well wherever they are, doing whatever they're doing. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 30, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.